Hey friends, welcome back to the Semi-Seminarian as we continue our Bible study series, which we're calling the Bible for Grown-Ups. We're now looking at the Acts of the Apostles in part six of our message. We're going to concentrate on just two chapters, 13 and 14, as we examine what's called the first missionary journey of Barnabas and Paul. And we're going to see Christianity as it evolves from a Jewish messianic sect into a global religious movement. I'll see you on the other side. Set the scene for our discussion tonight by looking at where we dropped off uh, last time. One of the things that, as we looked at that initial expansion outside of the city of Jerusalem, one of the things that we uh, discussed the last time we were together is how really Luke, the writer of the narrative, really shows us a literary genius that he has, the way that he's able to tell the story of this initial uh, foray outside of Jerusalem and into uh, Judea and Samaria. while weaving in stories of the apostles like Philip and Peter, at the same time uh, kind of keeping us in the loop as far as what's going on with regard to Saul, who will become Paul, as uh, he uh, initially begins persecuting the church, eventually on his way to Damascus has a conversion moment, and instead of persecuting the church, now becomes uh, one of its most famed uh, evangelists writing one-third of the New Testament by the time it's all done. And what we're seeing here, of course, again, is a promise uh, of Jesus at the very beginning of Acts that he explains how the expansion will go out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then eventually to the ends of the earth. And we are going to tonight begin looking at the missionary journeys this represents very poorly drawn, uh, the first missionary journey of Barnabas and Paul. Uh, Your text may still invariably refer to Paul as Saul, but at this point going forward, I'm just going to use Paul. Uh, Not not that you would be confused, but I do want to just explain for the sake of not having to switch back and forth and at what point. And it's in these two chapters tonight that actually the text will begin to refer to him as Paul and not uh, Saul. 13 and 14, but we're actually going to uh, begin uh, looking, when we do begin to look at Scripture after the introduction here, we're going to begin looking at Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 19 and through 24. Then we'll jump to 13. That's a good few verses that will just kind of uh, place us. Again, tonight is a ge- geography lesson as much as it is a, a Bible lesson. And so uh, Luke, with his literary genius the, over the last time, uh, shows us, interweaves some of these stories. We uh, know about the introduction of Christianity into Samaria, a place that hasn't historically gotten along with their uh, cousins, Semitic cousins, the Jews. And so when Christianity reaches Samaria, the apostles in uh, Jerusalem are a bit skeptical, and they send Peter to go and check it out. And sure enough... Uh, We have baptized people who have yet to receive the Spirit. If you recall, we talked uh, in that story about Simon the magician who asked for the Holy Spirit, but not asked for the Holy Spirit for himself, but rather the power to grant the Holy Spirit. We also looked at Philip as he goes to Gaza, which is in southern 
uh, Israel, and uh, he meets the eunuch in the chariot, the royal official of Candace, the African queen, and uh, he's baptized. Paul ends up being converted, and if you recall, when we dropped off last time, he was beginning to argue uh, with the same people that had made Stephen, the first martyr, upset, these Hellenized Jews, these people who were religiously Jewish, but politically and culturally and socially had accepted a Greek way of life. Of course, the group that is, uh, and this is an oversimplification, but for our purposes, we're not going to hold exams on, on this subject. For our purposes, this simplified explanation uh, will suffice and say that these Hellenized Jews were dominated mostly by the Sadducees, one of the ruling political parties within the Jewish uh, leaders. And the Sadducees were particular in their belief in that they did not believe in bodily resurrection. So the idea that the Messiah was Jesus, who had resurrected himself from uh, death, didn't jive for them. Also, they were the uh, group that controlled the temple. And if we recall, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the body becomes the temple. Those are two things that generally Sadducees uh, would would, uh, disapprove of. And so we see that argument. I'm not going to answer that phone. It's a bad thing, you know that. I'm trying to. (laughs) Peter and Cornelius. Cornelius is recognized within Acts as the first of the Gentile or non-Jewish converts to Christianity. He was someone that was considered proselyte, someone who did believe in a monotheistic God, who did believe in Yahweh, but wasn't a convert to Judaism. We recall that that uh, involved a vision of Peter uh, when he receives a vision from God in which uh, a sheet comes down and all different types of animals are laid out. And God instructs Peter to arise and eat. And Peter, stating what any good Jewish boy would, he can't because these, uh, these animals are unclean. God admonishes him saying, what God is, what I've considered clean, what I've called clean, it's not your job to call unclean. And we see that symbolism Uh, making a profound difference in the theology of Peter in that he now understands that it's God's desire that all peoples, Gentile and Jewish alike, be brought into the fold of followers of God. Peter goes to Cornelius' house, a house of a man that he would have considered unclean, gets there and it's full of people. So an unclean a, full, a house full of unclean people, and they all end up being converted and uh, baptized. Theologically, Christianity has now become a multicultural, multi-ethnic religion. But now we're going to see this actually begin to come true geographically, not just theologically. So let me just say real quickly about Antioch here in Syria. Antioch is where there will be a, where we're going to have a focus shift from Jerusalem, at least for these two chapters in this first missionary journey, a focus of attention away from Jerusalem to this city in modern-day Syria or uh, Turkey, uh, consider a uh, called Antioch. 
And it's the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It uh, rivals only Rome itself and Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, It was founded by one of Alexander the Great's generals. Uh, It was a nexus point between the Silk Road, which ran east and west to Asia, here to the Mediterranean, from the Mediterranean over to Europe. Europe, uh, the city of Antioch was also a huge port city. So it might be considered, say, um, uh, an ancient Near East San Francisco. If you could think of San Francisco at the turn of the 20th century, uh, a city that was very uh, diverse ethnically and religiously. This was a melting pot of all different types of people. So let's begin tonight. And this, this is where we're going to find our two heroes, Barnabas and Paul, when we pick up our story. But before we pick up our story, looking at 13 and 14, let's step back to Acts chapter 9, just so we can hear some place names and get ourselves geographically familiar, beginning with verse uh, 19. Now those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed uh, traveled as far away as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they, the apostles, sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with their hearts. He was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord here in Antioch. Then Barnabas goes to Tarsus, which is Paul's hometown, to find him. And he brings Paul now back to Antioch. So for a year... Barnabas and Saul met in the church here, okay, and taught a great number of people. And this was where the disciples were first called Christians, at Antioch. Now, that's how we get both Barnabas and Paul to this city, Antioch. So now let's uh, flip to chapter 13, and we're going to look at chapters 13 and 14 tonight. Now, in the church at Antioch, There were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, we're going to name some off here. Barnabas, and then there was Simon called Niger. That's Latin for black or dark-skinned. Lucius of Cyrene. Manin, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now remember, in our story, the Gospel accounts, we have Herod the Great at the beginning of Christ's life. Then later in his life... We have Herod Antipas, and that's to whom he is sent the first time from Pilate, right? Herod Antipas. And then Antipas's son was also named Herod the Tetrarch, the third Herod. And he's the one that ends up dying in our story last week. Well, come to find out that Manian uh, was friends with Herod the Tetrarch uh, as they grew up. Uh, and Saul, Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit uh, said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul 
for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. Now before I say anything else about this discussion between Barnabas and Paul, I would like to point out that the placing on their hands uh, of their hands here is not to confer upon them um, power or it's not to grant them authority, right? Because the Holy Spirit actually grants them authority here to be apostles. The laying on the hands by these disciples in Antioch is their agreement with the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, I'd like for you to turn with me. You think you, think you guys are going to like this. We're going to do this a couple of times uh, throughout the night tonight. And you, I think you're going to learn some stuff perhaps about these characters that are going to be familiar to you, but you didn't know this. At least I didn't until I began to really study this kind of stuff, and I think this is really stuff, great stuff. So turn with me to Mark 15, and we're going to look at chapter 21. The Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, the second Gospel. The 15th chapter, the 21st verse, and beginning at the 21st verse, where we find ourselves within the, narr- narr- the narrative of the Gospel account according to Mark is uh, Christ on his way to Golgotha. And so Mark, John Mark, says these words. Mark 15, chapter, chapter 15, verse 21. Mark describes this scene within that story. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. We all know the story of Simon of Cyrene, right? Now, when writing this part of the account, why do you suppose Mark would have mentioned uh, his sons, Alexander and Rufus? It's because they would have been known by the church by the time John Mark wrote his gospel. Remember, the gospel writers uh, don't have to tell us anything, and if they do tell us something, it's for a reason. Alexander and Rufus are particularly mentioned here in the gospel of Count because these are two men who would have been recognized by the reader of this account once it was written. So Simon of Cyrene, Alexander, and Rufus would have all been known to members of the church. These aren't names that Mark just decided to throw into his account to up his word count. right? They're there on purpose. So all of these men were known by the later church. Now turn with me to uh, Romans, the letter of the Romans in chapter 16. Sorry. Okay. Mark 15. Mark 15, Romans 16. Just one sentence. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to turn to uh, Romans chapter 16 if you want, because I'll just tell you what it says and you can kind of stay close. I forget. Let's say 5. What does Romans 16, 5 say in your Bible? Likewise, read the church that is in their house. No! Paul says in his greetings, oh, I'm sorry, verse 13. It's in the little superscript. And I'm old enough now that sometimes I read stuff and can't see real small print. Sorry, 13. Rufus. Greet Rufus. He says, hey, Roman friends, meet Rufus. Chosen by the Lord and his mother, who's been a mother to me too. It's supposed that the reason why Paul says this is because 
Rufus and his family was whom he lived whenever he went to Antioch. So when we find the Apostle Paul in Antioch, we find him living with Simon of Cyrene, who is the man who carried the cross for Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? A little interesting tidbit of trivia there. And it is supposed that the reason why he says Rufus and his mother, who was also a mother to me, is because she showed him hospitality whenever he stayed with them there in Antioch. So on to Cyprus. Verse 4, back to Acts 13. The two of them... Oh, and you know what? Let's pause right here as you flip back to 13. I want you to notice that in verse 2 of chapter 13, you'll notice that uh, the Holy Spirit says specifically set apart for me number one, Barnabas, and then number two, Saul. That will come back here in a second as important. The two of them, verse 4, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed there from Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, which is actually right there, Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Now, John, we know, isn't John the Baptist. John, we know, isn't John the Apostle, the, the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, because John was killed when we finished in chapter 12 last time. So this is another John. This is John Mark. The John Mark of whom it's supposed the mother uh, owns the house who, uh, in which the upper room is found. This is also the John Mark who writes the book of Mark. So John Mark is who this is. And I believe perhaps that maybe we call John John now because John the son of Zebedee is now dead. There's no more confusion about who John is. So John Mark gets to go back to be called and get, get to be called John. I don't know if that's true. I'm just saying it's interesting that we often see Mark or, or John Mark, but we never really see John Mark referred to as just John, except here. So they travel uh, through the whole island. So they came to Paphos. And there they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, what do you suppose Bar Jesus might mean in Aramaic? Son the son of Jesus. Actually, it would mean uh, technically the son of uh, Joshua. Yeah. Um, so, the son of Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now, the proconsul is going to be the Roman got the Roman who's in charge of this island. Okay, he's not necessarily a governor. But he would be like the district, the person who's in charge of a district, right? The pro-council, he's the guy who's in charge of dispensing the law on this particular island. His name is Sergius Paulus. The pro-council, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Paul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, for that's what that name means, Elamus, means sorcerer or magician opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith right so the proconsul the head roman wants to hear this they're stirring up all kinds of 
hubbub here on the island. I want to hear what these guys have got to say. Send uh, this guy. Send for these two guys. I want to hear their story. And then Bar Jesus says, "No, you don't want to hear their story. These guys are a bunch of nuts." Why would he say that? Because he's already got a corner on the advising religiously market for the pro-council. Bar Jesus or Elamus is the guy who is his religious uh, advisor. That's his job, right? Then Saul, who was called Paul, there we go, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elamus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him. He groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the pro-council saw what, would, what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching, uh, teachings about the Lord. Again, the pro-council has got this religious thing figured out. Remember that in a polytheistic many gods, polyreligious many religions, time and place of which this part of Asia Minor would have been completely. This part in the first century would have been wholly polytheistic and polyreligious. All kinds of gods. Right? We, we have... We have Roman people living in Greek uh, areas, right? Well, they even have their own gods for the same gods, right? Zeus and, and uh, Hermes, I think I've got that right, is the same thing as Jupiter and uh, Mercury. Greek gods, Roman gods, same gods, just different named gods based on who they were. Um, so in this time... When Christianity begins to make its inroads, religion is a dime a dozen. Okay? But Christianity was already proving here to be something different altogether. And I think that's indicative here of why Bar-Jesus was so incredibly uh, opposed to the pro-council hearing the good news. Because Bar-Jesus was a smart guy and knew there's something different about Christianity. If it would have just been any other of these religions just coming down the pike, they could have all sat around and listened to it and had a laugh. But I think Bar-Jesus knew the difference. And that had a lot to do with why he was so incredibly opposed to the pro-council coming in contact with him. Scholars have often wondered why Paul traveled there during his first uh, missionary journey. Some have suggested that perhaps the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus was converted at Cyprus and um, he had requested Paul visit uh, Pisidian Antioch. This is where we're going next. This is the area we're talking about. And so what I, sorry, what I meant to say was uh, some people wonder why Paul makes the trip here to this place. It's supposed that perhaps the proconsul down here had family up here. And so he perhaps may have even been the, uh, the sponsor of this leg of the journey. Go talk to my family up here in Pisidia, Antioch. So after leaving Cyprus, uh, Barnabas and Paul travel a roughly 
110 miles. This is about how far that, that is. They might have traveled, uh, some people say that they might have traveled along a Roman highway that would have been in this area, which would have been constructed in 6 BC, which conducted, uh, connected the interior of Asia Minor with the coast. Uh, this Pisidian Antioch is the site of Paul's first recorded sermon in the book of Acts. And as we're going to find out, it doesn't take our traditional Jewish friends uh, to oppose his message. Uh, Barnabas and Paul left uh, Pisidia Antioch for Iconium here. This is uh, not to scale because this is about 80 miles away. Um, and the people left behind there, however, were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. This is the first city to uh, have a fully Gentile Christian community. So, uh, picking that story up, let's uh, go to, uh, let's see, we're in 1313. So from Paphos, Paul and his companions. Now, if you recall from chapter, the beginning of the chapter, where I had said, I wanted you to notice that the Holy Spirit had called out Barnabas and Saul. By the time they get to here, it's no longer Barnabas and Saul. They're now described as Paul and his companions. It's kind of an interesting thing. I think it ends up kind of uh, leading to some later tension. And sailed uh, to Perga in Pamphylia, where John, John Mark, left them for Jerusalem. Now do me a favor, put your finger right there, and skip over to Acts 15, and I'd like to look at verse 36. Beginning at verse 36. Sometime later, this is later on, guys. This is, uh, they'll be back in Jerusalem, or the, the focus will return back to Jerusalem here in 15. Okay, so this is after this is all done. Okay, but this is a description, a later account of where we're at presently in our story. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark. This is John Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. And they had such a sharp, sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers in the grace of the Lord. Now, do we know a relationship between Barnabas and John Mark? They are cousins. They are cousins. And it's interesting that the way we see a change in the name from Barnabas and Saul to Paul and the other boys might have been a reason for the, the reason why John Mark said, I'm not following this guy around. I can't stand this guy. I'm going back to Jerusalem. That's one theory. It could be that he was just a flake and he ran away. Could be. Seems like John Mark, the other examples of John Mark, uh, his, the accounting of his life in Scripture seems to tend to think that he was more reliable than less reliable. So I think this Barnabas... Uh, Paul thing has a little bit of weight to it. From Perga, they went on to uh, Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. Okay, so 
Let's just stop right there because that actually tells us something about how they are evangelizing. They're still evangelizing by going to the synagogue, speaking to the Jewish people and the proselytes, right? Those that were Greek, but had in, in various ways converted or connected to Judaism. So you have in these Greek cities, you will have in Turkish, modern day Turkish cities, you'll have Greek, uh, Jews. Then you'll have people who are Jewish converts who weren't ethnically Jewish. And then you're going to have Greek speaking people who are proselytes. In other words, they believe in God. They, they dig this whole Jewish thing, but they're not fully converted Jews. Because more than likely they would at this point be observing dietary law. If, if these proselytes, these, these proto-converts, if, if they were um, taking dietary law along, a regular dietary law, they wouldn't have been allowed in the synagogue. They'd have been ceremonially unclean. Right? So more than likely, yeah, you're exactly right. These are, these are people who have converted all but probably circumcision. And so this is how they do it. They go to the synagogue first, and they speak on the Sabbath. Now after reading the, uh, from the Law and the Prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, they're saying this to Barnabas and Paul. Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Now imagine, the, the Jewish, the non-Christian leaders of this synagogue have just invited Paul and Barnabas to stand up and speak for themselves. A decision that they will soon regret. So, standing up, again, this is the first sermon of Paul. No, we're back in 13. That's correct. Back in 13. Uh, chapter, verse six, 13, 16. Yes. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God. Okay, that's the Persetalites. Listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power. He led them out of that country for for about 40 years. He endured their conduct, which I think is an absolutely wonderful way to describe God's patience with them during that time, in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, which we can learn about if we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All of this, Paul says, took about 450 years. After this, this is, that's the 400 years in captivity, that's the 40 years in the wilderness, and then that's the 10 years after uh, the, the, trans, uh, the, 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 crossing, the transit of the Jordan River, the crossing over the Jordan River. But Joshua and the people stood, stayed there 10 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet, then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin. And I think this is Paul being Paul, if you know a lot about Paul, because his name is also Saul. And he's also of the tribe of Benjamin. I think it's kind of Paul going, oh, wait, look, man, I'm, from, I'm a Benjamite too. I think that there are times when he uses the fact that he is both a, 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 a Pharisee, and a Benjamite, yeah, when in Rome, yeah. yeah, to kind of you know really pump up his his uh, stature. So uh, Saul, the son of Kish, the tribe Benjamin, Saul rules for forty years, and after removing Saul, he made David their king. And God testified concerning him, saying, 
I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. Now, does God mean that David's going to be perfect? Nope. God means David will create a lineage that I'm talking about in Hebrew Scripture that whenever Jesus comes along, you're going to be able to see I fulfilled that promise when we talk about it in the New Testament, so to speak. So he says this prophecy in the Old Te- Hebrew Scripture, the First Testament, if you will, right, to make that as a signifier. So when this happens, when Jesus comes, and He comes the, by way of the prophecy of the Hebrew Scriptures, you're going to know it was me and not just something somebody made up. Right? And that's exactly what happens. And from this man, Jesus' descendants, God has brought Israel, the Savior Jesus, David rather, sorry, as He promised. Before com- the coming of Jesus, John, that John the Baptist, teached, uh, preached repentance and baptism, As John was completing his work, who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Okay, So I basically, as Paul in my first sermon here, have recapped the whole history of the Hebrew people. And now comes the so what part of the sermon. So he looks at these men in the synagogue. It's his fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. It is to us, all of us, that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets as read on the Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead and for many days was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We, Barnabas and I here, we tell you the good news. So, if you kind of wonder, what was the gospel message? What was the good news? What was the thing that these apostles, these evangelists, what did they tell people to convince them to become Christians? Here's Paul's version of the good news. This is Christianity boiled down to a sentence per Paul. What's the good news, Paul? It's this. What God promised to our ancestors, He's now fulfilled for us, their children, through Jesus. As it's written in the second psalm, For you are my son today, I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it will also be stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Okay, I just want to stop right there because Paul has now repeated this same concept Twice. What is he driving at? Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. Now, what does Paul mean there? He died. David, for everything he was supposed to be, did not hold the power over life and death. And his body is worm food. His body is gone. It has decayed. 
power of life and death has come to us through Jesus. And if you believe that, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is set free from the sins you know you commit. Every sin. Well, what does Paul mean there? What is Paul telling these Jewish and proselyte people in the synagogue? What's the big problem with the law? The big problem with the law is when you know you've screwed up, you can go offer repentance and be forgiven. Right? But you also know, and you don't have to follow the law for very long to know that there are going to be times when you're going to break God's law and it's not even going to occur to you. There are going to be times when you are going to sin by breaking the law where you recognize it and you go offer a sacrifice of atonement and then there are going to be times when you're going to break the law and you're not going to realize it and you're not going to be atoned for it. That means you're not going to be forgiven. Now, does God say that you can get to Jewish heaven as long as you atone for the sins that you knew about and said uh, gave atonement for? No. So you can't break any of these rules. Even if you don't realize it, you're still guilty. That's the problem with the law. And that's Paul's argument here. Because Paul is saying, through God's grace, Jesus has taken away that stumbling block. Not of the law for the sins for which you know you've committed and you follow the religious uh, practice to, to be forgiven, but you're actually the stumbling block. That's not the stumbling block for us. The stumbling block is, as humans, we're going to break the law even when we don't even realize it. And Jesus provides a justification away from those sins. That's what Paul is teaching them here. This is what's different about Jesus, he's saying. And how is it different? And how can I tell you that there is supernatural, otherworldly power involved With this new system, verse 37, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. How do we know this is from God? Everybody we have ever known as from the patriarchs forward, no matter how great they were, Moses, the lawgiver, died. And rotted away to dust. David, the man after God's own heart, died and rotted to dust. Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead and whose body did not decay. This is proof of God working in the world through Jesus. It's Paul's argument. This is why Jesus, this is what makes Jesus so different. He says, therefore, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you weren't able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets said don't happen to you. Look, you scoffers, he's he's, uh, citing Isaiah here. Look, you scoffers, 
wander and perish. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. Paul is saying, I'm the someone telling you. Don't, don't discount. Don't push away. Don't blow off God working supernaturally in our world, in our lifetimes. Because there are people our age who not only have heard the story, but saw it with their own eyes. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas and talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Is this a Jewish city? This is a Greek city. Is the synagogue now filled with people who are not Jewish? That's exactly what's going on. You think you get upset whenever you come in on Sunday morning and someone is sitting in your uh, pew? Imagine how these guys would have felt. These guys aren't even Jews. They have swarmed the synagogue. You guys have got to hear what these guys are saying because they're talking about God not just being for these Jewish guys, but for us too. So on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowd, guess what? They were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse upon them. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We have to speak the word of God to you first, to you Jews first. Where does righteousness and justice come first? Right To the temple. God, the entire time, of humanity throughout the entire relationship God holds his chosen accountable first right and then justice goes out when the word of Christ is spread it goes to the Jewish people first righteousness and justice start at the temple first okay so we had to come to you Jewish friends to talk to you first. But since you rejected it and you do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we have now been instructed to tell it to everybody else because we didn't make this up. Jesus told us, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. They honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited, and I love this. This shows how smart these guys actually are. But the Jewish leaders incited God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. You want to get these guys to shut up? You go get their wives to hassle them. Which is basically what's happening. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook the dust off their feet, right? And we know the, where that language comes from. That's advice of Jesus when he sends out his disciples. If you're rejected, shake the dust off your sandals, right? And then they went to Iconium, down here. 
and disciples were filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. So we've moved towns. We've come out of Pisidia, Antioch. We're down to Iconium as we begin chapter 14. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, to the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively, the great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. Okay, so they're there. They're in Iconium for a considerable amount of time. Right? Uh, Speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them, that's Barnabas and Paul, to perform signs and wonders. So they're there for a long time. They're preaching and they're teaching. Essentially what's happening is, the longer they preach and teach, the more divided the community becomes. The more staunchly Christian the Gentiles become and the Jewish people that reject the message, the more defensive they become. But in this considerable amount of time, one thing that everybody has to acknowledge is Paul and Barnabas are performing all kinds of miracles in the city. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot amongst both. Uh, to mistreat them and stone them. But then they found out about it and fled to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derby. Okay? And to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. Now this is one of these super cool things that if you don't know, if you don't realize this, I think this is really one of those things that puts things together. Okay, so we're following the story in Acts, and we followed it from the very beginning. And when we start out at the very beginning, Jesus is still on the scene, right? And then we see Pentecost, and the church begins to grow. And we see the conversion of Gentiles. We see the conversion of the eunuch. Then we see the conversion of Paul. And now all of a sudden we see Christianity coming up here to Turkey. And as we have followed in our study, we have followed Christianity from its very beginnings as a church to where we are now, right? This is a chronology here. Now, what's really interesting is we stop, and you just stay right there. Because I'll come back to 14 real quick. But if you stop and you flip your Bible over to Galatians chapter 3, what's Galatians? The Galatian letter is a letter by the Apostle Paul to Christians in a place called Galatia, to Christians who lived in churches who lived there and went to churches Paul had founded, right? Where is Galatia? That's Galatia. Whenever Paul is writing to the Galatians, these are the people to whom he is writing. And Galatians, a little bit later, after this church has been formed, right? Chapter 3, we've got a problem because Peter comes along and tells these folks, Oh, you guys love Jesus? Me too. Love Jesus. You got to get circumcised. Remember? Right? And Paul goes, no, 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 no. Forget that stuff. It's circumcision of the heart now. Lucky you. No, 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 no. It's okay. Right? And this is his letter to them explaining that. Chapter 3, he says, You foolish Galatians who bewitched you, Peter. Right? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or believing what you heard? Are you foolish? After after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you trying to finish by means of the flesh? 
Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law? Are you believing what you heard? When he's recalling to the Galatians, that moment, that's where we are in the story. He's converting the Galatian people to whom he'll write, to which you know the letter of the Galatian church. There's no Galatian church here, but this is where it's founded. It's kind of interesting. It may not be to you. So continuing on, chapter 14, uh, we're now in Lystra. Here. In Lystra, they said a man who was lame. This is going to be a story that's going to recall very much the story of Peter and John as they go to the um, temple one day. There was a man who was lame. He'd been that way from birth and had never walked, just like the other gentleman. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, saw he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet, just as Peter did. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd, crowd saw what Paul had done, this is where the story t- turns different, though. They shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So I think this is just an incredible uh, image here as, as Barnabas and Paul perform miracles the people of Lystra think, of Lyconium think, it's the Roman gods. They're the Greek gods. They have showed up. And Paul and Barnabas are like, no. No, 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 no. We're regular dudes just like you. Our story continues. They tore their clothes, rushed out into the crowd, shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you the good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to a living God. Who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Now, why would Paul, trying to explain God to them, use this language? He has given you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He's provided you with plenty of food and he fills hearts with joy. The reason is these other gods, these Roman and Greek gods, the default was they were always angry. You didn't serve these gods out of pleasure You serve them to keep them from punishing you. That's a fundamental difference here between monotheistic Yahwehist thought and polytheistic, polyethnic religious thought. God is a God of love. God provides you these things because He loves you. You don't serve God because you're scared of Him. You serve God out of thanks because He loves you. These people did not understand that concept. That's why even whenever they said it, they still couldn't grasp it with their heads and still wanted to offer sacrifices. 
It shows us something about the thought of the Gentile people here at this time. That the way that they thought of God was not that he loves us and created us because he wants to have a relationship with us. It's that these gods hate us. And if we don't do things for them, they will punish us. Fundamental dichotomy in theological thought between Gentiles and Jews. Then some Jews came from Antioch. This is the Pisidia Antioch. And Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and he went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. This is what's considered the frontier here of uh, Galatia. They preached to the gospel in that city, won a large number of disciples. Then they returned back here to Lystra, right? And then they went to Iconium and to Antioch. And what Luke is saying here is they get all the way out here to Derby, and they just basically retrace, retrace their steps. Remember, this is a trip that took a year out. This is a trip that will take a year back. Okay? So whenever they go back to these places, in many situations... Things have heated up because the churches have really begun to fire off. In places where maybe the kitchen was a little too hot, in some areas they had cooled back down and they were able to pass back through these cities without any further persecution. But they end up making their way back here to Atelia, right? And from there they sailed back to Antioch where they had uh, committed to the grace of God for the work they've been now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So they have made it back home two years later. At the end of chapter 14, we have what some people uh, will consider the end of part one. Part one of the Acts of the Apostles has this serious problem of how Jewish people and Gentile people are to get along being brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Because we have this concern that you're supposed to be Jewish, we have this belief that it doesn't have anything to do with Jewish law anymore. And through the first half, these chapters 1 through 14, this is a constant and consistent source of tension. Chapter 15, which we will focus on solely next time. Just one chapter, 15, is going to be our intermission. Chapter 15 is going to set a clear boundary marker between what Christianity and its expansion was like at the beginning and what it's like at the end. In between, we have the council at Jerusalem where we have to decide how are we Jews going to live with Gentiles in peace and harmony. And we're going to see one of my favorite characters of the whole of the Christian Bible, James the Just, or James the Righteous, Jesus' brother, is going to lead this council. He's going to send a letter to our newly minted Christian friends up here telling them how we're to live together in harmony despite our ethnic uh, differences as far as our backgrounds are concerned. And that's
Well, there you have it. I hope that that was as interesting for you to listen to as it was for me to prepare for. Before we go, I'd invite you, however it is that you access your podcast, to see if you would take the time to rate us and review us. It helps to get our name out there to more people. And next week, I hope that you'll join us as we begin to focus on what's called the Council at Jerusalem in chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles. But until then, friends, be blessed and be a blessing.